Hey everyone, welcome to Brain Health with Dr. Nissen. In this show, we explore the universe's great unknown, the human brain. In my reflections and interviews with guests, we'll go to the forefront of psychiatry, neuroscience, nutrition, and medicine to see how we can enhance our mental health, sharpen our cognition, and reach better performance. This is Brain Health, and I'm Dr. Nissen. Let's dive right in. Hello, hello, everyone. Hope you're all doing well. Uh, if you've been listening to Brain Health with Dr. Nissen, you are probably familiar with the idea of psychedelics and how they're being studied for mental illness. Um, and so uh, today I am really excited to present to you an interview that I just had with Rick Doblin. Rick Doblin is the executive director of MAPS, which is uh, perhaps the, uh, the most pioneering um, organization looking at psychedelics uh, for use as a possible medication, uh, as a possible treatment for um, mental illnesses. So um, in particular, MAPS is uh, really excited to uh, just have their phase three clinical trials published. Um, and so these were looking at the use of MDMA-assisted therapy uh, as a treatment for PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder. So uh, there's going to be a lot of acronyms here. I wanted to kind of orient you all to uh, everything that we talk about during our conversation. So first of all, MDMA, you've probably heard of it before as Molly or ecstasy. Um, you know, it's been thought of for a while as sort of a party drug, but um, uh, what Doblin and his colleagues have found is that it can be very therapeutic when used with therapy. So um, I recently wrote an article about this for ABC News, and it's talking about this MDMA-assisted therapy, meaning that um, MDMA is used in addition to therapy, like talking therapy, psychotherapy, uh, with a therapist, basically as a tool to move you into a state where you're able to be uh, perhaps more reflective, uh, you have less of your defenses down, and you're able to have more productive therapy sessions because of that. So that's the idea with this uh, MDMA. Uh, and, and what was recently studied, studied and published in Nature, uh, was, which is an incredible journal, uh, was their phase three clinical trial. So this is another thing I wanted to explain, is that uh, whenever medications are undergoing uh, study, uh, for their possible therapeutic benefit, they go through different phases of clinical trials. Uh, so the phase one clinical trial is basically looking at safety. So it's going to look at a small number of healthy people and say, you know, is this, um, you know, something that's going to kill someone or, uh, or really harm them? And then assuming that the results from that are fine, then it'll move into state into phase two clinical trials where they're going to be looking to see, does this do anything positive? Is it, is it, you know, effective? Um, and it's looking at a group of people with a disease and saying, you know, is this effective? The phase three clinical trial is really getting towards the end when you are then uh, doing, you know, a randomized controlled trial comparing uh, the treatment um, against a placebo. So, um, you know, really to see whether this is uh, a, a, an effective treatment um, and whether it's it got good safety. And so this is what they did with MDMA-assisted therapy for people that had post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. Uh, so I was so honored to be um, invited by Rick uh, to join him in his backyard. Uh, we had a beautiful kind of spring day uh, to discuss the results of this trial. So I hope you find this to be a really interesting conversation um, and really 
an eye-opening conversation into psychedelics as uh, a new class of medications and treatments um, that will hopefully help to revolutionize um, psychiatric treatment, the treatment of mental illnesses. Um, and before diving in, one last thing that I wanted to say is it's important to remember that MDMA is still a Schedule One or a legal drug. So um, in no ways, you know, am I or Rick or the people at MAPS uh, encouraging people to go out and buy and try this on, on their own. This was all done within the, the confines of, um, of a clinical trial where safety was very closely monitored. So, uh, you know, it, all medications require the full scrutiny of the FDA before they can become um, legal and become prescribable. So uh, definitely do not try this at home, uh, but this is interesting nonetheless. So without further ado, let's dive in. How would you describe MDMA? I would say that um, just think about a deep breath. Mm -hmm. That's MDMA. Mm. You know, you, you settle in, you have a little bit more relaxed, you sink deeper. Um, it can calm you down. So I think that's one way. Another way to think about it is um, the Sabbath. You know, mm. as, as uh, Zalman, Rabbi Zalman Shachter said, it's like mm. a, a time out of time. It's like a break. You're, you're mm. you know, within our minds we're often like um thinking about what's next or, right. or what we have to do or what what just happened so mdma quiets your mind mm. so you're more physically present mm. and emotionally present and yeah. intellectually present so you have time too it's like something that you normally would say oh i can't do that i'm too busy i'm not going to think about that you just have this deep breath and you settle in and you say hey maybe i should think about that i am going to die one day what do i want to do with my life right you know or that was terribly painful, you know, and I always like run away whenever I remember it. Mm -hmm. Now maybe let me take a look at it. Puts you in sort of this reflective yeah. state. What what's been found in this most recent clinical trial and why it's so important? Yeah. Um, well, the most recent clinical trial was again the first phase three study ever of psychedelic assisted psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. Because of the stigma of psychedelics, um, we felt we had to work with the hardest cases. So the first phase three study was with severe chronic PTSD. Many psychedelic, or excuse me, many studies with PTSD patients exclude people that have previously attempted to kill themselves. We felt we need to include them. Mm -hmm. So we have people that had PTSD an average of over 14 years and severe chronic and in most cases, they've tried SSRIs or other medications or other psychotherapies. So what we know also from the SSRIs that are approved by the FDA and EMA for PTSD, that they work better in women than in men, and they don't work at all in combat-related PTSD. Hmm. So what we showed is that um, our treatment works regardless of the cause of PTSD, that we had uh, tremendous um, statistical significance uh, 0.0001. We had uh, really great effect sizes. We had 0.91. Well, again, yeah, I don't know. Everybody don't know what no, this means, ahead. but yeah. uh, you know, 0.91 was the placebo subtracted effect size, meaning that's just for the MDMA. But it's 2.1 effect size for the combination of therapy plus MDMA, wow. which is astonishing. It's yeah. two standard deviations away from the norm, which is really pretty big. That's what yeah. that means. An effect size one is one standard deviation, two is two. We had a great safety record. Um, we had one woman try to kill herself twice during the study. Another woman um, had such severe suicidal ideation that she checked herself into a hospital to avoid killing herself. 
turned out both were in the placebo group. Mm. We had nobody like that in the MDMA group. So what we have demonstrated from this study is that it was such an outstanding success that there's a very good chance that our second um, phase three study is likely to work as well. And so that realistically, assuming we um, can enroll enough people, we've got a very good chance of making MDMA-assisted therapy for PTSD into a, a prescription medicine. Well, I told you a little bit kind of about my story. Could you tell me your story? And I get the sense that all of this, you know, with this phase three clinical trial is the, the most recent part of a very long story <laughs> yes, for you, yeah. you know? So what what's your story? In the yeah. Of this? Um, well, um, I'd say the... Um, how should I say this? Um, when I was um, 18 years old, back in 1972, yeah. is when I decided to um, focus my life on psychedelics and go through psychedelic therapy, try to become a psychedelic therapist myself, and to try to bring back from the underground um, psychedelics. Yeah. Um, my motivation was more political than therapeutic. Mm -hmm. um, I had grown up, um, when I look back on it now, um, I grew up in the most um, conducive context to think I could have an impact, meaning that I was born in 53, the height of American power, you know, so this whole American exceptionalism right. kind of idea, that was just like everybody was, so I absorbed American exceptionalism. Yeah. Then I was Jewish, and mm -hmm. so like, okay, now I'm the chosen people. Mm -hmm. So I kind of absorbed that. Now, of course, I realize everybody's the chosen people. But, yeah. you know. Um, on top of all of that, I was white. Mm -hmm. um, on top of all that, I was male. Yeah. And I was the firstborn male child in my family. <laughs> um, and then on top of that, my... Um, Great-grandparents on one side and grandparents, uh, grandfather on the other had been immigrants and had fleed uh, anti-Semitism and repression yeah. from Russia and Poland. Come to America in like 1880s and then um, a little bit before the turn of the century and then my grandfather came in 1920. Mm -hmm. um, but then um, the American dream and they, they kind of um, were financially well off and then I was raised to think that I had this multi-generational mission to work on um, deeper threats yeah. than just survival. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, I was thinking today a good image is like, you know, the people on the Titanic that were super wealthy that were still going to die. Yeah. You know, you can be on a, a um, you can have all the resources in the world. You can end up in the concentration camps. You can right. end up in the Titanic. You can end up burned to crisp in a nuclear war. Yeah. Um, we all suffer from um, the consequences of global warming and climate change and species extinction and yeah. all of that. So I was just raised by parents who were very progressive, um, left-wing, um, liberal, yeah. and, um, and they imbued me with this sense that I had to work to help the larger Jewish family in the world yeah. and that, um, that that would be sort of a... a a purpose of mine but I didn't know what what you know yeah. how to do that or, or what ways um, yeah, I have loads of Israeli relatives but I didn't think I wanted to move to Israel um, so it was really just when I first started taking um, well 
when I first started taking LSD and um, mescaline, it was a little bit scary because mm -hmm. I had um, been led to believe that if you take LSD five or six times, you're certifiably insane. Yeah. And that if you take psychedelics, particularly LSD, you're going to have chromosome damage and deformed babies. Mm -hmm. And that um, you could have massive psychotic breaks and, you know, just all the negative stuff I believed. So yeah. when I first... Um, questioned that it was from literature I was very much into books and it was um, a book I read a friend of mine in my Russian class gave to me it was a tremendous book and I hand it back to him and he says um, do you realize that some of this book was written under the influence of LSD hmm. and I'm like that's impossible you know th there's nothing good comes from LSD it's a delusion it's disorienting it's hallucinations yeah you know so he said no no it's true check it out and it turned out he was right it was uh, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's yeah, Nest yeah. by Ken Kesey. Mm -hmm. So that was the sort of crack in the uh, propaganda edifice for me. Yeah. And then when I started taking LSD, it um, opened me up to my emotions, which I had been previously um, disconnected from. Yeah. I had been just more very thoughtful, cognitive. Um, and then it also had uh, intimations of um, beyond eco-states and how sort of unit of states, the energy, just yeah. the um, sense of time. And even in the deepest part of my brain, myself, you know, where you talk to yourself, where I talk to myself, I realized that um, I'm using English and I didn't invent English. And, right. you know, so it's like even in my most interior private spots, it's not really interior or private. Right. So all of that just made me think that, aha, the sense of connection that uh, you can get with psychedelics beyond the ego, that has political implications. That would mean that we're all connected and then how do we dehumanize, how do we commit genocide, right. how do we be racist, how do we trash the environment? So it was for political reasons really that I got into it. But th the other part was also that I recognized that um, the psychedelics were doing what my bar mitzvah should have done. <laughs> <laughs> You know, that my bar mitzvah was just like um, an outside rite of passage. Yeah. But it didn't really touch me spiritually mm -hmm. or so. Uh, I didn't feel any different. I, I felt like lost in a drift. You yeah. know, again, I was the oldest of four kids, so I was the first one to go through this. And, yeah. you know, I, I had this idea from my parents, from the community, from the culture that something profound would happen, some spiritual thing would happen. Uh, well, it didn't. Um, but when I first started doing LSD and mescaline, I was like, aha, this is the kind of energies that I was thinking my bar mitzvah would, would yeah. generate. Yeah. So anyway, all of that came together in me uh, deciding to focus my life on psychedelics. But I mean, the key part that I um, would also say that the final step was having a lot of difficult experiences mm -hmm. with psychedelics. I sort of kept at it because I thought it was important and I should try to um, overcome my resistances, but I was scared of letting go, scared of the emotion. So, you know, I went to the guidance counselor at college and the guidance counselor um, took me seriously. Now this is 1972, so that's pretty amazing. Um, private college, new college in Florida. And um, he gave me a book to read, which was Realms of the Human Unconscious, oh. Observations from LSD Research by Stan Groff. Mm -hmm. The absolute amazing part was that the book didn't come out published until 1975. So my guidance counselor had a manuscript copy and he was in touch with Stan. Wow. 
Stars aligned. Yeah, <laughs> and so it was reading Stan's book that confirmed everything for me, that, that here was this incredible research that was having an enormous impact on understanding the psyche and understanding um, psychotherapy and understanding spirituality was yeah. the, the realms of the human unconscious but it was um, looked at from a scientific lens mm. so I was very suspicious of religion and dogma and mm -hmm. fundamentalism and um, and yet this was a scientific lens looking at spiritual and therapeutic kind of experiences yeah. that had that um, sense that it that these experiences were legit and that this idea that they would have these political implications was was becoming ever more clear to me but then the, the other thing that Stan was writing about was that there was a reality test to everything all of the theories and it was therapy how do you actually help people get better you can have yeah. you know this like you can talk to somebody for um, hours and hours about uh, quantum physics and how we're all right. connected and but how does that relate to therapy or to reduce your depression or right, yeah. all of this was something that I became aware of fully from reading Stan's book but then I also became aware that all this was shut down yeah it was just so it made me think why is this shut down mm -hmm. and at the same time I was um, in the last year of the lottery for Vietnam and so I was a draft resistor and um, I decided that I would. Um, I studied a lot of nonviolent resistance, Gandhi and Thoreau and mm -hmm. um, Tolstoy and Martin Luther King, a lot, a lot of stuff I, I would study. And um, so, anyway, I decided that um, I would not register for the draft and that uh, they would eventually, um, they, meaning the police, would eventually pick me up and I'd go to jail. I didn't want to run to Canada or anything like that. But my dad was like, well, you know, I, I don't think you should go to Vietnam and, you know, if, if that's your choice, okay. Mm -hmm. But um, he said, you're never going to be able to be a professional. You know, mm -hmm. my dad's a doctor, you know, and um, he's like, you're going to have a felony record. And I was like, okay, that's the price I'm going to have to pay. But what am I going to do with my life? So then I stumble on psychedelics and I thought, yeah. aha, I can be an underground psychedelic therapist. That's my career. Wow. And I can work on bringing this suppressed thing back that was suppressed for a reason yeah for political reasons so a lot of people like so for example um there's a op-ed that um tom insel and paul summergrad have written potentially for the washington post i don't know if they'll do about our the nature the new england journal of medicine paper okay about psilocybin versus ssris for depression and yeah. about our nature medicine paper of mdma assisted therapy for ptsd it's about both of them sort of um, well, on both yeah them. yeah their their op-ed was going to be about that uh, both of that but um you know what they were um basically saying is that their um their narrative was that um the backlash against the 60s occurred because of irresponsible use mm. and people had psychotic breaks or people had yeah. difficult problems <laughs> You know, and I myself had had difficult problems. But I, I think that that's a misinterpretation of what really happened. Mm -hmm. I think those things happened, and that did cause a lot of negativity. But the real backlash against the psychedelic 60s was political. It was against the counterculture. It was yeah. against the Vietnam War protesters and the civil rights activists. And it was against, you know, people getting psychedelics going right, getting inspired by their psychedelic experiences, losing a bit of fear of death, 
you know, seeing more of our sense of connection and getting involved in challenging the status quo. Yeah. So that, I think, is the real cause for the backlash. Wow. Has the focus of MAPS is something I should know from my reading, but has it always been primarily on MDMA or? Yeah, it has. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. But but there's a bunch of strategic reasons for that. Hmm. And I think the strategic reasons have been borne out by um, the fact that we're the only um, psychedelic-assisted therapy that's ever made it into phase three. Mm-hmm. We're ahead of everybody else. The psilocybin people are still in phase two. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the strategic reasons are that MDMA is the most gentle of all the psychedelics. Mm-hmm. Um, it's easier to integrate. It doesn't produce the panic reactions that other mm-hmm. psychedelics tend to do sometimes. Um, and also we believe that um, therapists and psychiatrists who are going to be trained to do psychedelics would be more effective if they did the psychedelic themselves. Yeah. I mean, you wouldn't go to a meditation teacher that didn't meditate or a right. yoga teacher that didn't do it. So, yeah. We felt that in the fields of psychiatry and psychotherapy, there's more resistance to taking LSD or psilocybin than there would be to taking MDMA. Hmm. Right. So all, all of that was sort of led to this idea of MDMA. The, then the other part was, what are we going to look at? You need a, a MDMA, you need drug patient population combination. Right. So of all the ones that we're going to try to strategically choose to move through the incredible resistance culturally and scientifically and all that, so what we needed was uh, a patient population that people were sympathetic with. Mm-hmm. Cancer patients were good. People that are going to die, yep. you know, we're all sympathetic with that. Um, we needed a patient population for which um, the available medications didn't help everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that really led us to either cancer patients or people facing life-threatening illness or PTSD. So PTSD... It's uh, at the time when we first decided this, it was Vietnam vets. Hmm. Um, now, just to say that one of the most satisfying things that has happened in our phase three research very recently yeah. is that we've had a veteran that was in our study who had PTSD for a very long time, and now he's doing much, much better. Yeah. And he had PTSD from Vietnam. Wow. We've had somebody from almost 50 years PTSD and they can still get better. Yeah. So anyway, we needed a sympathetic patient population. So it's veterans or women who've been sexually abused or domestic violence or, you know, rape and assault or childhood traumas. Mm -hmm. Um, The SSRIs, the medications work for some people, but they leave a lot of people not any better off. They have side effects. They control symptoms, but they don't get to the root cause. They're good moneymakers for pharma Mm -hmm. because you need them every day forever. Right. Um, but it was this combination of um, the drug and PTSD and then also the fact that what MDMA did was ideal for treating PTSD, reducing the fear of painful memories, um, helping process emotions, opening mm-hmm. up the mind-body connection because a lot of, you know, like Bessel van der Kolk who wrote, you know, The right. Body Keeps the Score, he's the principal investigator of our Boston site. Mm-hmm. And so... Um, you know, the, the MDMA opens up the mind-body connection. It, it just was perfect, per, per, perfect. So that's how MDMA for PTSD. Now, also in 1984, I worked with my first PTSD patient. Yeah. And that worked great, and she got better, and she kept getting better and better and better. So all the time that we're hearing about neurotoxicity and people are, yeah. you know, she's I keep watching her, and she's getting better, and she's not relapsing. Now she's one of our top therapists, and she trains other therapists. Wow. 
but I knew MDMA for PTSD was great. Yeah. The, the cancer patients were good, but they were um, more of a um, response to neurotoxicity. Oh. You know, and once that started changing, so in, in 1999 and 2000, we started in Spain with MDMA for PTSD. In 2000, I met Michael Mihofer, our, our lead psychiatrist, who wanted to work on um, psychedelics, and then we decided to work with MDMA for PTSD, and that's how it began in the U.S. Wow. Hey, listeners, some of you have so kindly asked how you can support the podcast. You can help by supporting us on Patreon, so please kindly find our Patreon link in the show notes. You can also support us by leaving a review, so please let me know what you think about the show by leaving a review on iTunes. You can find me on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram, and Facebook as Dr. Nissen. And it's important to note that this podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. And the use of this information and the materials linked to this podcast is content of this podcast and is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice from any medical condition they have, and they should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions.